We are in the final term before the home stretch in the story of Acts, and as we have seen many times in this history, in city after city, the gospel is preached first to the Jewish people. As Paul goes into a city, he goes to the synagogues first, and he preaches Christ, Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of the prophets and all of the promises from the scriptures. He, it is fulfilled in Jesus, and, and you crucified him. We as the Jews crucified him, our own Messiah. But he rose from the dead, and now he offers forgiveness of sins, and he calls all to repentance and believe in his name. So Paul would go first to the synagogues, and many would believe. They would come to Jesus as their Messiah. But then eventually there would be resistance. There would be those who would, who would uh, resist and persecute and eventually kick Paul out, or Paul would leave, and then he would turn to the Gentiles, and then he would preach Christ to the Gentiles. And now we see the same shift in the big story of Acts. So we've seen it repeated over and over again from city to city, but now we see it in the big story of Acts. This shift from the gospel coming to the Jewish people, to the Gentiles, to the city of Rome, Paul is determined to go. And Paul has made his last defense in Jewish courts. He is now in the custody of the Roman Empire and he is now defending his ministry in Gentile courts before the Gentile rulers of the earth. As one writer put it, God is guiding the gospel into the heart of the Roman world. That's exactly right. And that begins with bringing the gospel before the rulers and authorities in that world. Now, Jesus had told his disciples this would happen. Luke chapter 12, beginning of verse 11 when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Those terms, rulers and authorities, are referring to the governors, the proconsuls, the emperor himself eventually. These are those rulers and authorities that the disciples would stand before. Jesus said it again in Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 13, beginning in verse 12. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So we have seen Jesus' words fulfilled many times in this study of the book of Acts, if you've been here for, the, for this series We've seen over and over again, Peter and John get called before the Sanhedrin. They then get recalled in before the Sanhedrin. Paul stands before proconsuls and tribunes and governors. This has happened city to city, and now it is happening in the big story. So this is the beginning, then, of the fulfillment of many prophecies 
in the Hebrew scriptures. Consider Psalm 2, verse 10 and following. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of the call to the nations and their rulers to pay homage to Jesus, the Son. In Acts chapters 24, 25, and 26, the Apostle Paul stands before three different Roman rulers. He stands first before a Roman governor named Felix. He stands then before another Roman governor named Festus. He will then stand before King Agrippa, and King Agrippa is really Herod Agrippa II. He is the son of the Herod Agrippa who executed the apostle James back in Acts chapter 12, and then, if you'll remember, died of worms. He was consumed by worms because he received glory for his oratorical skills instead of giving glory to God. This is his son in chapter 25 that we'll be introduced to. And Luke shows us in these trials in the Roman courts that there are really two matters at stake. First of all, the integrity of the gospel is at stake. Is the gospel subversive? Does its preaching undermine Roman rule? Is Paul an enemy of the state? This is a challenge that the gospel and Christians still encounter today. And don't just think other places in the world, I mean even in our own country, these questions are asked. When we oppose certain moral judgments handed down by our Supreme Court and other courts in our land, the question is asked, are Christians subversive So this question of the integrity of the gospel, is it subversive? Are Christians, and in this case Paul, enemies of the state? The second is personal faith in Jesus. This matter is also at stake. At the same time that there is an official public verdict that needs to be given, these Roman rulers are called upon by the circumstances to need to judge whether or not Christianity is a threat to the state of Rome they are also challenged personally with the person of Jesus Christ. Now, on the first count, whether or not Paul is an enemy of state and whether or not Christianity is a subversive religion, none of them knows exactly what to do with Paul. Just as we saw in the last chapter when uh, Paul is seized in the temple by the, uh, the Jews who want to uh, lynch him, but he's saved by the local Roman tribune who comes in and rescues him with soldiers and tries to figure out what is going on. He doesn't know what to do with the apostle Paul, so he has now shipped him to Felix in Caesarea. Well, Felix doesn't know what to do with him. You'll see that Festus doesn't know what to do with him. So these rulers on the whole don't know what to do with the apostle Paul, but it's clear that he's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing illegal, that the charges against him are unfounded. 
When it comes to this second matter of personal faith, each of them misses the gospel. Each of them misses the gospel. Each of them misses this opportunity to respond to Jesus with faith and repentance. And if Paul seems unconcerned throughout these trials, it is probably because the Lord has already told him back in chapter 23, verse 11, take courage, for you must also testify in Rome. Jesus has personally told Paul, I'm gonna take you to Rome. You take courage. And that promise holds Paul steady throughout his imprisonment and all of the harrowing voyage to Rome, which comes up in chapters 27 and 28. So the question then is, how does God bring the gospel before the rulers of the earth? How does he do this? We pick up in chapter 24, verse 1, and see that, first of all, the gospel's integrity is established publicly. The gospel's integrity is established publicly. Now, remember, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem by the local tribune who has now delivered him from a treacherous plot against his life by sending him under guard at night to Caesarea to be tried by Felix, the governor. Chapter 24, beginning of verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude." But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So first is the prosecution. Tertullus is uh, defined here as a spokesman or described as a uh, spokesman. This means that he is a hired gun. He is a professional litigator, if you will. The Jewish leadership, before coming down to Caesarea, have hired this man to be their representative in the Roman courts. So he probably has some expertise in dealing not only with Jewish law, but also Roman law. And so he is speaking for the Sanhedrin. He is speaking for the Jewish leadership in this prosecution. And his opening statements may sound like flattery because Felix was actually very unpopular with the Jewish people. So this, this we embrace this and we're happy about all the reforms you're doing, Sound like flattery. He was known for his brutality, and he actually stirred up more resistance to Rome by his ruthless, uh, his ruthless methods than he did actually quell insurrections and rebellions. In fact, when he's replaced here at the end of chapter 24, we know from, from ancient history that the reason is because he caused so many problems among the Jews that Nero, the reigning emperor at the time, recalls him to Rome, fires him. 
But these words are actually very strategic. By linking the compliments to Felix with their accusations against Paul. In other words, what he's saying is, we know that you have, you have faithfully guarded the peace, that that is your highest priority, Felix, and we are glad for these reforms and what you are doing in the nation, and because of that, we know that you will have to see Paul, this man, as we see him. They mean to contrast Rome's priorities, which are Felix's responsibility, with Paul's actions. So with these compliments, he is already setting up, he's painting Felix into a corner. And the accusations then are these. First of all, Paul is undermining Roman rule by disrupting the peace. He is a dissident, he is a trouble causer, and we know that peace was a high priority for Rome. That's why Rome, for one, uh, for one thing, was very effective in maintaining its empire. Is it knew how to conquer a people, but then deal with the people, negotiate things. That's why the Jews were able to keep their temple. That's why they could continue to worship the way they worshiped and have synagogues in cities that weren't in Jerusalem. It's because of Roman policies. They put a high priority on keeping the peace. And so if you did things that disturbed the peace, that threatened the Pax Romana, then that would bring swift response from Roman authority. So their first accusation is Paul is undermining Roman rule because he is disrupting the peace. And what they're trying to say is regardless of the issue itself, which is internally Jewish, a theological argument, Paul's disturbing the peace by doing it. He causes riots. He stirs people up. Secondly, Paul is a ringleader. This word means a chief of a dangerous sect. This is the very kind of group Felix was known for hunting down and quelling, something that was sectarian, something that divided itself and caused problems. He's the chief of them. They're the Nazareans. Thirdly, Paul has profaned the temple. Now, the temple was a, was a sore spot for the Romans because that was a place where they kind of negotiated, you guys can have your temple, you can continue to do your worship there, you can continue to restrict Gentiles and not allow Gentiles into the temple. They made all kinds of concessions and gave the Jews a lot of leeway in how they enforced their own laws for worship at the temple. And so when they accuse Paul of profaning the temple, what they're saying is that there, he is really going against Roman policy and our freedoms that you've given us to maintain the temple and to maintain worship there. He has profaned the temple. We caught him there. And they say it almost like they, they've done Felix and the Romans a favor. We caught him uh, disrupting the temple, and we seized him. We seized him. Their goal then is to paint Felix into this corner, to be consistent with Roman policies, to be true to his own reputation, he must condemn Paul. Since Paul and his message are in direct conflict with Roman goals and policies. Or Felix runs the risk of contributing to more insurrection, more disturbances, and so on. 
But the accused has the right to defend himself, and so comes Paul's defense, beginning in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Now this is a dense defense, if you will. Paul says a lot in this short speech. First of all, he establishes his piety. He is in Jerusalem and in the temple to worship, not to oppose and not to debate. What he says here is that he wasn't disputing with anyone. He wasn't disputing in the temple. He hadn't been disputing in the synagogues, and he hadn't been disputing in the city, which means the streets or in any kind of public market place. He hadn't been arguing or anything. No, dis no disturbances. He was not there to oppose or to debate. He was there to worship. And he uses a word for worship twice here. He establishes that his accusers have no data, no evidence. Change, uh, the charges then are unreliable. Now, in our own court system, we can relate to this. Evidence is paramount. There needs to be evidence to convict someone of some criminal activity or wrongdoing. This stretches all the way back to our roots, our founding as a nation, and even further back into English law. But those laws and that kind of court system all are handed down through the centuries from Roman law. So in the Roman court system, evidence was also extremely important, as was testimony. And so Paul is saying they have absolutely no evidence. I can give you, and you notice, it was 12 days ago, less than 12 days ago, I went up, so on and so forth. Paul is pointing out, this is the evidence, this is what happened. And you can establish this, Felix. You can ask others. You can call in other witnesses to this. He then acknowledges his distinctive beliefs. He says, it is true. I do belong to the way, but the way is consistent with the Jewish faith. Notice Paul's argument. 
It isn't opposed to it, it's the fulfillment of it. And without going into a lengthy theological explanation, which Felix may or may not be prepared to hear anyway, he just simply says it's, it, is, uh, it belongs to the Jewish faith. It's conducive to it. And the, my conclusions about the law and the prophets may be different, but I hold to the same hope they do. What Paul is doing is he's again throwing the weight of this controversy back into a theological arena. And he said, it has nothing to do with Roman rule or anything subversive, you see. They, my hope rests on the same promises. It's not sectarian, it's not divisive. I, plea, I live to please God, my conscience. His behavior then, in the end, is above reproach. It's above reproach. I've done nothing wrong, and they have absolutely no proof to bring before you that I have done. Now, notice, Paul is not defending the gospel directly. In this trial, Paul does not preach Jesus. He doesn't say anything about faith or repentance or the forgiveness of sins. He is not challenging the courtroom to believe and repent. He is defending his ministry. He is defending his actions in Jerusalem as above reproach, having done nothing to violate his conscience, nothing to violate Jewish law, and nothing to violate Roman law. And here's why. Because the gospel's testimony is tied to Paul's innocence. He is no longer preaching to the Jews. He is laying integrity for Gentile acceptance. That's what Paul's doing. He's laying a foundation of integrity so that the gospel is now being guided into the very heart of Rome. That's his goal. Because as Paul's innocence is either, uh, is either acquitted in this court or he's condemned, so goes the gospel before the world. Felix's judgment then, verse 22 but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Felix's judgment, I defer for now. Okay, I defer. Partly because he wants Lysias' testimony. And Lysias is the tribune from Rome. He's the one who has written the letter and sent, Rome, uh, sent Paul under guard to Felix. He wants his testimony. But it's also partly, according to Luke here, it's partly because he has an accurate knowledge of the way. What does that mean? That means that Felix has heard the Christian gospel. He is familiar with the Christian church. He understands, probably, he understands the real issues here. He might, may or may not understand all of the theology that's, that's up for debate, but he understands that the Jewish leadership's motives and what Paul is really doing, how they really relate to one another, and that there's nothing to condemn Paul for. He understands the issues. 
And that partly indicates just how successfully the gospel had penetrated the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And now it's being explained, and now it's coming into their highest courts. Also, we'll see below here, Felix is stalling for time. He's stalling for time. In the end, he can't condemn Paul because there is no case for condemnation. And I think Felix's treatment of Paul implies this. He's kept in custody, which means that Paul is under guard, and it means that Paul remains in chains. But he has some liberty, which probably means that Paul was able to walk around, that at getting permission, he could probably move from one part of Herod's palace to the other here in Caesarea. He could have the freedom to write letters, He had the freedom to have friends attend his needs, which means friends could bring him food, could bring him more clothing, could bring him reading materials, scrolls. They could bring him writing materials, medicine if he needed it, news from the churches. Paul was in contact. He wasn't isolated, and he wasn't thrown into a deep, dark, dank cell in Caesarea. He has a lot of freedom. And so there, and there may be many reasons that Felix does this. One, Paul's a Roman citizen. He doesn't have any grounds to condemn him. It could be that Felix's uh, little ears popped up when Paul said, I brought alms to my countrymen, which is probably pointing to the collection from all of the other churches to help the Jewish people who were suffering from the famine. So money gets Felix's attention. So it could be in a lot of reasons that Felix does this, but Paul has a lot of freedom here. And so this first step is taken before the courts of the rulers of the earth to establish the gospel's integrity. But the gospel is not a threat. But also we see this, that the gospel's power is preached personally. The gospel's power is preached personally. Look at verse 24. After some days, and this could be weeks, could have been a month, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, we don't know if Lysias ever came down to Caesarea, if he ever testified or gave testimony. Luke doesn't record that. If he did then Felix basically ignored it and left Paul in custody here. But in any case, some days afterwards, following this trial, Felix seeks a more private audience with Paul. Now, his wife, Drusilla, is Jewish. She is actually the daughter of Herod Agrippa. And I mentioned Herod Agrippa a few minutes ago. 
Uh, it was Herod Agrippa who had James the Apostle executed back in Acts chapter 12. Herod Agrippa was consumed by worms. Herod Agrippa had a daughter, Drusilla. He had a son, Agrippa II. This is Drusilla. This is his daughter. She is the sister of King Agrippa II. Her marriage to Felix was a scandal because he seduced her to leave her first husband. And by the way, she was his third wife. It's just like an American soap opera, okay? She is his third wife. And so, we, now, I, we don't know why Drusilla is drawn into this. It could be that she's curious. It could be, being a Jewess, that she wants to understand what Paul is talking about when he talks about the way, and it's the fulfillment of all the hopes of the Jews. That's possible. It also could be that Felix is trying to get a better grasp on what's going on, and she might have a little bit more background and expertise to help him figure that out. In any case, this is a private audience with Felix and his wife, Drusilla. And Paul spoke to them about faith in Christ Jesus. This is a summary for Paul's content, that he explained that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that his death and his resurrection from the dead meant the forgiveness of sins, and that there was a need for faith there was a need for repentance. This is the gospel. Paul is giving the gospel to Felix and Drusilla. And according to this next phrase, Paul confronts Felix and Drusilla at a moral, personal level in a way that is appropriate to this couple, a Gentile ruler and his wife. He tells them, or reasons with them, as just as this is the same word, that throughout Acts is used to describe how Paul presents uh, Jesus as a Messiah in the synagogues. He reasoned with the Jews. So that means that he went to the text of the Hebrew Scriptures and he said, look, it says this. Look, Jesus fulfilled it here. Look, the text says this. It means this. We know it has to mean something more than that. And look at what Jesus taught and said. And then look at what Jesus did. He is the fulfillment. That's the reasoning process. And so he's proving, demonstrating, persuading that Jesus was the Messiah. He now reasons with Felix and Drusilla about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. All things they need to hear. So what the gospel then means is life change, that part of the presentation of the gospel is not just these truths about who Jesus was and what Jesus did, but what that means to then follow him. It means living righteously. It means living with self-controlled lives in light of the fact that judgment is coming. He points to the end. Coming to Jesus means a new life. It means a new master. And then he points to the end. Judgment is coming. Judgment is real. God will judge not only the Jews, his chosen people. God will judge all of the nations of the world. Catch that. God will judge all peoples. No wonder Felix 
And Drusilla respond with alarm. Felix was alarmed <laughs> and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, which is another way of saying, when it's convenient, I will summon you. And apparently he did many times. I'm talking about a two-year span of time here. So Felix is an example of a divided response. Felix is a torn man. I think, it's, I think he's curious. I think he wants to understand. And I think that, and I might be reading in the white space, but I think he's drawn to Paul. I think he's drawn to Jesus. I think he's drawn to the gospel. And he's convicted. This is what causes his alarm because he hears what Paul says about righteousness and he hears what Paul says about self-control and he hears what Paul says about the future judgment because of those things. And Felix looks at his own life and he knows that if that's true, that judgment's coming for him. How typical of a response is that? Very, right? So Felix is a, is a divided man. He's x-rayed by the gospel. His heart and his life are, are exposed. But he, his interest in the gospel is mixed with greed, ulterior motives. This is illegal, by the way. This expecting a bribe, taking a bribe as a Roman official, that was illegal, even in Roman law. It wasn't to be done. So this is a very unflattering portrait of Felix and how he operates. He hopes Paul will give him money. That may or may not be why he has treated Paul well as a prisoner, but he obviously has part of his, part of his motive then. You can just sit this, this divided, I wanna hear the gospel, but there's also this, I'm hoping Paul will pay me. I'm hoping Paul will slip me a few a few hundreds so that I can set him free. So it's his interest in the gospel is mixed with greed. And in the end, Felix does what is expedient, doesn't he? He leaves Paul in prison. This is a, this is a political move. He wants to leave favor for the Jews. Now, we know from history that the reason Felix is being recalled to Rome, the reason he has to leave, the reason he is replaced by Porcius Festus is because the Jews are out of control, angry with him because of his policies and his treatment. So this makes sense that as a parting, a parting uh, political favor, Felix leaves Paul in prison. He doesn't have grounds to condemn him but he can leave him in there as long as he needs to to protect the peace. And so despite hearing the gospel, despite all of these conversations with Paul over two years, Felix leaves him in prison. So during these two years then, Paul is in Caesarea. You, kinda get, you get that reference, but think about this. Paul is arrested, he's in Jerusalem, He's still, two years later, he's still in custody in Herod's palace. Now, some think that it's during this time that Paul actually writes what we call the prison epistles. Colossians and Philemon, who 
Philemon is a letter written to an individual named Philemon who lives in the city of Colossae. The book of Ephesians, the letter to the Philippians. These four letters that we call Paul's prison epistles, in each of them, Paul refers to being in chains. Some believe, and I happen to think this too because of different things that are said in these letters about traveling and distances covered between these letters and Timothy being sent and all these different things, that these, this is probably a time, two years, sitting around in chains, Paul is probably writing letters. He's probably writing to the churches. And so two years, Paul is in prison, waiting. And as he's talking with Felix and sharing the gospel, now think about this. We get discouraged when people don't respond to the gospel. We get discouraged when years, and sometimes as family members, we, we bear faithful testimony to Christ. We point to Jesus. We invite them to church. We invite them to different functions to hear the word, whatever it might be. And there's no response. This is the apostle Paul. And Felix misses it. He closes the door. Festus will miss it. We'll see that next week. Agrippa II will miss it. And I believe it's during this time that, that uh, Paul is preaching gospel to guards too. No doubt, especially if you read the book of Philippians and that's being written at this time, he's sharing the gospel with guards and they are hearing the gospel. There's probably conversions, but Luke doesn't say anything about it. And the rulers, these sitting in seats of judgment, Governors, they don't respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. So don't be discouraged. Two years, Paul, sharing the gospel with a reprobate government leader with ulterior motives, and he doesn't respond. So, in conclusion, then what? We see, first of all, that the gospel is not subversive. But the gospel is rather unconcerned about the kingdoms of earth and their so-called authority. The kingdoms of earth are but a vessel for the gospel. This is important because this consistent, repeated verdict that Paul is innocent of any wrongdoing points to the otherworldliness of Jesus' kingdom. Now, I've mentioned this before, but this last portion of the book of Acts, Paul being on trial before the Romans and his voyage, this accounts for 25% of the book. It's not just a small thing. It's not just kind of the, the resolution of the story. It's a huge part of the story that Luke wants us to see. And this otherworldliness of Jesus' kingdom reminds us of what Jesus said when he was on trial before the Roman governor of his day, Pontius Pilate. And you remember the Jews are using the same accusations about Jesus. He is undermining Roman rule. He even claims to be a king. And Pilate pulls Jesus in and he says, are you a king? And Jesus says, I am, but my kingdom is what? Not of this world. Pilate's not concerned. He knows Jesus is innocent. He does, like Felix, what is expedient. He ends up crucifying Jesus to please the Jews. 
But it's pointing to this same thing. Jesus' kingdom is transcendent. It isn't that Jesus has no interest in the nations and the rulers. One day, Jesus will judge the nations and their rulers. He will set it all straight. He will administer true and complete and perfect justice. But that is not our task in this era. That is not the mission that he has left us. He has not left us to overthrow governments or enforce righteousness. Jesus' kingdom confronts, listen, Jesus' kingdom and gospel confront the kingdoms and cultures of the world through the church, but they do it without threatening those kingdoms with force or subversion. And when Christianity turns to a theology and a political uh, philosophy that says we are to enforce it, we end up with something like the Crusades. And there was a reason we call that the Dark Ages. is because we did not have the Bible. The people did not have the Bible. They did not have the truth. They did not have the voice of God. Which is why the Lord Jesus rose up the reformers, and brought about the Protestant Reformation to bring the scriptures back to light to the people of God. But when we operate that way, that's what we end up with. We end up with something like the Crusades. That is not our mission. That is not our task. Now, in some places in the world, it is not possible for a Christian to stand in the court's of its nation and claim the innocence that Paul does. Because in some places in the world, it is illegal to be a Christian. Conversion to Christianity is outlawed. And those brothers and sisters of ours in those places in the world must stand in those courts and say, yes, because uh, I must either obey God or I must obey man. And they must be faithful to the gospel, even when it's outlawed. So sometimes it's not possible, like Paul, to be, quote unquote, legal. Because sometimes it is against law. But the point that Luke is making is still salient. It's still meaningful because even in those cultures, the Christian faith is still good for that nation. And that testimony of those brothers and sisters before those governments in those courtrooms and places where their faith is against the law is a testimony to the gospel that opens the doors for once again those rulers and those nations to respond with repentance and faith. And any time where Christianity is lived out and given that freedom, it is good for a nation, it is good for a culture because of goodwill, Christian love, and good works. So even in those places, the gospel is being presented. So we see that the gospel then is not subversive. It is good for the nations of the world. It is good for all cultures and all ethnicities, all nations. Secondly, 
Personal faith is at stake. Personal faith is at stake. Even for every Roman ruler who hears the gospel, for every American legislator, for every state's governor, for every U.S. president, personal faith is at stake. And each of them must answer for his or her own faith or own rejection of Jesus, as well as for the fairness and the justice of their judgments in the world. In one sense then, and I'll close with this, in one sense there is a great irony in the center of these passages. Though Paul is under arrest, though it is the Apostle Paul who is the one in chains, it is Rome that is on trial. And so Rome represents all of the kingdoms of the world. Paul stands in Roman courts before its rulers while they ask, what do we do with this Paul? What do we do with this guy and his movement and this Jesus that he preaches? But it is Rome who stands in Jesus' courtroom while Jesus asks Rome through the Apostle Paul, what will you do with me? What will you do with my gospel? That is the spiritual reality that is unseen and yet very, very real. And it is still the same today. And remember that. When you were brought before the courts of unbelievers, and I mean that almost metaphorically. It may be literal for some of us, sometimes, someday, but I mean even when you are put on trial by someone you know in whatever context God has put you in to be a light in the darkness. When you are put on trial, the real issue is how they will respond to Jesus and while it may be that you are on trial, it may be that you are standing in their courts, the real issue is that they are in the courtroom of God and they are called upon to respond with repentance and faith. And that is the real judgment. That is the real trial. And so you as Jesus' followers, we as Crossway Fellowship, can always know and be encouraged that as we continue to be faithful in our testimony, corporately as a church and individually as Jesus' people, we can know and be encouraged that it is not we who are, in the end, we who are on trial. It is the world. And God gives us the opportunity to stand like Paul and to deliver, to give the gospel and to maintain its integrity by our own faithfulness and love for those 